show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Welcome, folks. Glad to have you tuning in with us. Let's get right down to it. My guest today is DJ Chuang. A DJ is known for many things. He actually hosts his own excellent podcast called Erasing Shame. He and his co-host uh, do quite a bit of work as it relates to shame, particularly not in so much majority culture, but Asian culture and Asian American culture. DJ has a background in uh, pastoral work, in theology. He also does a lot of consulting about multi-ethnicity and minority culture. And so DJ and I went on a wide-ranging conversation. Hope you enjoy it. I've been intrigued by your blog posts on the naive pastor. Um, tell us what na- what pastors are naive about. What do we need to know? <laughs> well, uh, there's a lot that I discovered as I started my journey into being a pastor. I didn't grow up in church, and uh, I realized after or start. Let's see, my background's computer engineering, and then as I uh, felt a call to ministry, I went to Dallas Seminary, and during the five years there, I started getting involved in church, and I thought. At that time, seminary, and maybe today, uh, seminary prepares you to be a Bible teacher in a classroom setting. And then secondly, I think um, it prepares you to be a uh, counselor in the pastor's office. And then everything beyond that in terms of organizational development, managing volunteers, managing staff, navigating your career and and, uh, the dynamics of everything else is really not spoken to, or it might be spoken to in one or two classes and that's it. But in a fast changing culture, as we are in, in the 21st century, I'm realizing uh, pastors, pastoring today is harder than it ever was. I knew going into seminary, it was really hard. And uh, one of the reasons it's really hard is because our culture is changing so fast which means uh, the, the pastor and the leader has to be on this constant treadmill of learning. So it's not, you go through seminary and you're fully equipped for a lifetime of ministry anymore. It's that you've got to be constantly learning. And then um, uh, I, I thought about the naive pastor as a framework to begin capturing some of those things that people never talk about but are part of the subtext of ministry. So one of those things is power. When's the last time you read a book about power in the Christian church context, right? Very rare. I think there's one by Andy Crouch. Yep, Andy Crouch and then Kyle Strobel and uh, Jamin Goggins have a book on power. Mm, So there's two. (laughs) Two. (laughs) Yes. And then certainly there's one, uh, uh, there's a book now about anxiety. That's a huge I've heard about mistake. it. Yeah. <laughs> Transformational for me. And uh, it really puts words to things that are already going on in the life of who we are as people, but especially as leaders. There's a whole other layer and um, weight of that anxiety that if we don't put words to it, we're not able to process it. And what happens is it, it, it simmers in the recesses of our heart and mind. And then something will happen that triggers and then you explode or you uh, get derailed or you do something really stupid. And 
um, or you implode. And we've seen some uh, recent news of uh, pastors who have died by suicide. And I think it, there's some really tragic things that if we are not able to deal with those uh, blind spots and naive parts of being a pastor, uh, it hurts not just us, but it hurts so many people around us. Yeah, I, I really appreciate how um, you shy away from church politics. Like that can almost sound like a cliche, but I like how you frame it as power dynamics. It's the same thing, but it is a mm -hmm. less triggering way to talk about it. Mm -hmm. do, you, uh, do you have a story off the top of your head of where you've run foul of power dynamics in church leadership? Well, I spent five years in seminary. I spent five years pastoring. And then after a decade of spending my life trying to be a pastor and I realized I could be an okay pastor, but it wasn't the best thing that I could do. <laughs> and so my story, now I'm 53, my story is uh, bringing together all that I have in terms of my skills, gifting, as well as my passions and interests and bringing them all together in me so that I can bring everything I have to the table and to serve God and God, uh, God's people better. And so I think in the sovereignty of God, uh, having been a pastor has given me empathy and understanding to come alongside of pastors and churches and to be a advisor, a consultant, a confidant and researcher and networker has uh, become my role that has been most fruitful and fulfilling. So um, that's where I wound up. I forgot the original question, I'm sorry. I was trying oh, to give some context. Oh yeah, I was wondering in that five years mm -hmm. where you were a pastor, yes. I mean, you must have an example of oh, yes. um, either you contributing to the power dynamics or being the recipient. Like I, I do think one of the challenges we have today is we tend to make ourselves the victim of it as if we're not also equally a perpetrator. Mm. So either way, you'd want yes. to take that question. Well, I definitely have yeah. stepped across um, things that I did not know were power um, related. Uh, I was a youth pastor in a traditional Chinese church in a seminary that was predominantly Caucasian, Anglo kind of setting, did not prepare me for the cultural dynamics and the power dynamics in that church culture. And neither did my family. So um, even though I grew up in a Chinese family, that does not prepare you for a collective uh, Asian culture. So um, there was a time where I uh, inadvertently offended some people that were my elders. And I approached it as an egalitarian, hey, I just want to reconcile. I want to ask for forgiveness. I'm contrite. But I had to go through the hierarchy, which is a formal structured form of power uh, to try to reconcile. And um, I didn't get to uh, resolve that. Um, and the short of it is, uh, my, the, the, the people that finally talked me off the edge from pursuing that so-called reconciliation was, Hey, it wasn't a real problem, uh, to begin with. So, uh, just, just cool it, chill down and put me back in my place. And so, so that my second year there, it was, uh, to play, to, uh, play well with how things are. Yeah. And so it's learning to work and be harmonious, which is a huge Chinese culture value, 
within that structure so that it doesn't create anxiety and confusion for everybody else. Yeah. You, uh, you've referenced Chinese culture a couple of times. I, I've been listening to your podcast, A Raising Shame. Mm-hmm. I found it fascinating, TJ, because uh, like anxiety, shame is this very pop-level conversation right now. You've even mentioned that people like Brené Brown have really brought it to the front. But I, I love how you're broadening the conversation about shame. You are integrating your own heritage mm-hmm. to show how shame isn't simply individual. I think that's what Brene Brown is offering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit more about that cultural shame. You've, you've shared stories about your family and saving face. We'd love yes. to hear more about that. Yes. Well, uh, I started the Erasing Shame podcast in February of 2018, and uh, I felt it was such an important topic for me to process, but I also know just because Asian cultures are very shame-based, um, there's a relational element to shame, there's a community aspect to shame, there's an identity aspect to shame that is accentuated in Asian cultures. And um, uh, in particular, personally, so it wasn't just my Asian culture, it's also my personal struggle. I struggle with bipolar disorder. So I was diagnosed with that uh, 20 years ago. And it was a, it was a shame kind of thing that I couldn't talk about it until six years ago in, in the public sense. So it was something that I kept having, having to hide. And that's what shame... The, the first instinct that we have as shame is to hide. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3, that when Adam and Eve felt shame or realized shame, they hid, they covered themselves. And when we do that in our lives today, um, it begins to fester. Yeah. It begins to fester. So whatever uh, shame that might be, it begins to fester, and we have to have a healthy outlet for that. It's it's related to anxiety. It's it's kind of all connected, and um, so I felt it was such an important conversation to speak to uh, because of my own mental health and of my own struggle, and um, also, well, I'm not alone. So other people struggle with it too. And as I was seeking resources, there just wasn't something that spoke to me. There was conferences, there were books as I learned to take care of my self-care. Uh, I was able to afford a psychiatrist and, and counselor, but I know a lot of people don't have access to that. And so I was thinking, okay, I got no budget, no staff. What can I still do using the wonders of technology? And um, well, I see people doing Facebook Live. I see people doing YouTube. And I thought, well, let's let's just start a conversation on shame. Hey, it's great that Brene Brown can talk about it. She's got books. She's got a Netflix movie now. <laughs> right, uh, yeah. Um, but uh, until we see someone that looks like us and has experienced life the way we have, particularly as Asian Americans, speaking into my context, uh, it doesn't resonate. There's still something missing. And what I've learned over uh, the past year is that um, shame looks different in each culture. And when shame is only spoken of from the majority white culture, it leaves out the Latinos, leaves out the African-Americans, leaves out the Asian and Asian-Americans. 
And so even if I were to just say the same thing as Brene Brown, it would resonate more because I can draw in from my own lived experiences. And the second thing I would say is shame we've discovered is such a black hole because it is never talked about, Brene Brown says, shame festers in silence. And so I wanted to flip that around, okay. What's the opposite of silence? Well, let's talk about it in a healthy and honest way. And so that's our podcast. It's very simple. We just, um, I just find someone to talk with each week and we talk about a different aspect of shame, whether from an expert perspective or an experienced perspective. So one of these days, we'll have to chat with you about it too. Oh, I'd love that. That that would be a delight. I, I, I hear you share about your uh, bipolar journey and I'm struck in hearing you right now, DJ, um, because I've got a few friends in ministry who also battle various kinds of mental illnesses. Mm -hmm. And aside from just their pure bravery, um, what strikes me is they have a gift that I don't have. And I don't mean to diminish or simplify the battle that they face, but their ability to care for somebody in a particular situation that I'm simply unable to care for. It feels the same to me to where I've never yet been an addict to something. Now, maybe one day I, I can see myself heading that direction if I was not careful. Mm. But I, in our congregation, we have people in recovery who have a power and a ministry that I simply don't have. Mm -hmm. you, you, you know, mm -hmm. six years ago is when you started publicly sharing this. Mm. This must have opened up a whole world of people that God has used you to serve mm -hmm. that the rest of us don't have access to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, it's, it's been an adventure that I had never anticipated, but now that it's part of my life and God's given me healing and faith to step into this, it has begun to help, uh, more and more people. Uh, has, has that in turn, DJ helped you like that whole secrecy and silence, mm -hmm. and then that brave decision to speak about it. Mm -hmm. Does that then... Uh, how do I say, is there like a feedback loop that now come and actually helps you heal as well? Yeah, uh, actually uh, it does. It does because uh, when you're carrying the weight of shame or anxiety by yourself, you're carrying it alone. So it's really heavy, but when you're able to share it with someone that you trust and someone that can support you and receive your story, then that weight is lighter. So uh, one of the episodes that we did last summer was with a, a woman named Hannah, and she had never shared her story and her struggle with shame. And after we recorded that episode, she said she felt lighter. Mm. So just getting to share that uh, in a public sense on a recorded episode of a podcast, it, it freed her to a degree. And that's, that's uh, a part of erasing shame that when you're able to share it in a public kind of sense then you you're no longer hiding you've you've put it out there in the world and that frees you from that dimension of curing that weight i think that's wonderful I, when i was a hospital chaplain i was young and very naive and the, the supervisors there were the first people i think in my life to show me that God is in the dark places I'm trying to hide mm. and that God is not only redeeming them and working in them, but also one of the things that was shocking to me is I can't hide them. In fact, they're very, they're very, my blind spots are very available to the people who know me. <laughs> um, 
but it, it reminds me of the same thing. I'm, I'm personally so grateful for that gift because in, in my own journey, mm-hmm. I've gone through a lot of theological doubt. Um, and as a preacher, that can be a bit of an occupational hazard. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do think I've experienced the same dynamic you were talking about when I share my doubt with my congregation, mm. not so that they carry it, but so that it has less grip on me and mm-hmm. hopefully welcomes them. Mm-hmm. It, it is a mutual ministry Yes. That seems to be, I think, what you're saying as well. Yes, yes. Uh, the, the more that we can share our own humanity, it helps others to realize that they're human too. And uh, yeah. as we wrestle and bring God closer to us and also allow the mysteries of God, then it frees them to develop their own relationship with God. And I guess I should say a word of caution. So some people might hear this and say, well, we should just put everything out there. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, there's there's things that are appropriate to share in the public sense, and there are things that you still have to process in the confines of a few people, um, whether close, trusted friends or with a professional therapist. Oh, I'd love to hear more about this, DJ, because uh, right, our, our church has college students that come and do residencies with us, mm. and they are struggling exactly with this issue where they have been so drilled into them the power of authenticity they want to share a struggle within minutes. You know. uh, give us a bit of a filter. How, how do you decide when you're ready to share something? Uh, I think of my wife because <laughs> she's the opposite of me. So she's very careful about what she shares publicly. So uh, that's a filter. That's always a voice in the back of my mind is like, would she cringe at me sharing this? <laughs> so if she would cringe, then I kind of hold it back or I, I keep it to a smaller circle. Okay, so that's a very tangible way that I can be mindful of how to share appropriately. Now for college students and people that are single, you don't have the wife there, then uh, someone that you trust, with, whether it's a pastor or someone who is in a public role. And I think pastors are good example um, of that um, or a community leader or a teacher um, you know would they would they cringe at how you share that uh, versus um, uh, welcoming that and providing the support to say hey thank you for sharing that vulnerably authentically so that um, uh, when I think of giving tips and advice I try to think of concrete specific examples because I tend towards ideas and yeah um, possibilities. I hope that would be helpful. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how your childhood experience has shaped your ministry today. You emigrated from Taiwan when you were eight. Were you speaking English when you emigrated? No, I I learned English when I was here in the U.S. Tell us some of those... I'm sorry. Tell us some of those early stories of what it was like to be in a majority culture. You're no longer in a, your own majority culture. And then how has that informed your ministry today? Um, I don't re- remember a lot of my childhood. Um, I, I've come to realize um, that I grew up in a very traditional Chinese family so that when I had exposure beyond my family, which was in college, that uh, my my family was more strict and uh, isolated than even other Chinese families. Uh, I spent most of my middle school and high school years, or actually all of them, 
in a small town, Winchester, Virginia, with 20,000 people. So it's very colonial, very white. I think we had three families that were Asian. And so I didn't have that sense of Asian Americanness that is now popularized in movies like uh, Crazy Rich Asian. Um, so a lot of my learning has come after college as I interacted with a more multi-ethnic America. And I think what is common in terms of how it's shaped my ministry, which is, uh, I would say, Asian American and multi-ethnic. And I kind of smashed those two words together to become multi-Asian. Um, that many, or I'll say most, Asian Americans wrestle with the tension of being from two different cultures, having to live in two cultures. So at home, they have to be very Asian. And then outside of the home, whether at school or work, they have to be very uh, majority American. And most people only deal with one culture, but to have to deal with two culture, it's a heavier burden to carry. And people take in different directions. They become more Asian or they become more assimilated. And then some come to a healthier place where they integrate the two and take the best of both. And that's when it can become an asset. And I think over time, I've been able to bring the two together and appreciate both instead of fighting. Uh, I a lot of my energy fighting my Asian-ness for, for years and now I can embrace it and come to a healthier place. I, um, I grew up in Western Australia. <laughs> we are directly south of... Uh, Japan and Japanese is the predominant second language in Australia. Mm. Uh, so we had Japanese exchange students in my home. And then my sister and I lived in Japan on exchange when we were in high school. Mm-hmm. And it, boy, what a, what a beautiful culture. I, I love how you remind us that Asian is not a broad brush, mm-hmm. that they, there are all kinds of microcultures within Asian culture. Uh, Hearing hearing you, what it made me think of is is your kids. Do you have kids, DJ? I have one who's twenty two now. Oh wow! Yes. So I have three kids. They were I'm Australian. They were born in America. Uh-huh. They orient they orient as American, but of course I'm white. Yes. And it's been difficult for me as an Aussie to figure out how Aussie to make my kids. This morning mm-hmm. I had Vegemite toast for breakfast, <laughs> and I teased my my teenager. I'm like, "Do you want some?" And he's like, "No," <laughs> because my kids don't like Vegemite. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, um, have you struggled with that too with your child on on how Asian do you make your American child? Yeah, so that's one of those uh, parents' conversations that me and wife, wife talked about on a few occasions as we were raising him. And my wife is along that cultural spectrum. She's very much assimilation. So she sees her Chinese heritage. She's American-born. Uh, she sees her Chinese ancestry as just the skin that she was born in. So she subscribes to that colorblind theory. Um, So we essentially shielded our son from uh, a lot of Asian culture, though you you can only do so much because he gets exposure through the grandparents and and he gets exposure through some media and a few of his friends. But um, he, oh, here, here you go. So uh, recently, we had a conversation about race and identity and faith. So after college, he's become much more interested in those topics. And we asked him, do, do you know what kind of, do you know what makes you Chinese? 
Mm. And he could not put words to it. He only knows himself as Asian. So huh. in a funny way, we say, hey, we congratulate ourselves. Hey, we did pretty well <laughs> shielding him from our Chinese <laughs> yeah. culture. <laughs> mm. But uh, the Asian parts that are intuitive for him is take off your shoes at the door when you come inside. Um, uh, show some uh, deference to those who are older. Um, what else? Um, he just returned from a trip to Hong Kong, so uh, he might have picked out some more cultural things. He does appreciate. Uh, he does enjoy uh, Asian foods and spicy foods, so that's uh, just you know some funny little things like that. But uh, he he's not very Asian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, th I think the big question must be, based on your podcast, does he bring a gift when he visits another Chinese family? No, he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't teach him about gift, gift buying. Um, I th yeah, that was one of your stories I remember, is, is the mortification of not bringing a gift. Yes, that was one of my yeah. faux pas in my yeah. years. Yeah. DJ, I think one of the gifts you can give us... Um, is is what does a majority culture need to know that we don't know uh, as it particularly relates to church life, mm. um, whether someone would label themselves evangelical or not? Mm -hmm. um, what what would be considered a stereotypical mm. white church culture? What do we need to know that we don't know? Mm. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, right now, as we're speaking over a podcast, and the way social media has uh, grown to become the new public square, there's a lot of shouting between people of color and majority culture. And that is a very, very small minority uh, that is very vocal. So they, they're not representative of the whole, but they are representative of some people. And so uh, recognizing that, that minorities have a different story uh, is the first step and getting to know that story in a personal way would be the first, uh, I, would, I would say the first um, step to take. And when you're crossing cultures, uh, do it in a personal way, not a programmatic way, and do it over food, just like Jesus uh, talked with people over food. So food and friendship, I think, is the best thing that a majority culture can do. Uh, rather than something to know. So, uh, for example, because of my American mindset, when I was dropped into a Chinese cultural church context, I wanted a book that would explain Chinese culture to me, but that didn't exist. And so the majority culture needs to realize it's not what you know, it's what you will do to build those relationships and understand those stories that will make the biggest difference to begin understanding. feel you're ready and you've taken your vitamins it's probably time uh to inflict upon you my gauntlet of anxiety questions all right let's go excellent
And we're in season three, so some of these questions are new. You'll be my second ever guest to ask them of. So okay. they may work, they may not work, DJ. We'll try. And you're always free to pass. Sure. You know, you, you're not that I could make you answer, but I just want to put that out there. Thank you. So the question I ask every guest, uh, I believe anxiety always starts in the body, or at least if we can notice it in our body, we can intervene quicker. And it typically starts in a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut. Where would you say it starts for you? I was going to say all three. <laughs> mm -hmm. A lot of people say all three, and that's usually because it's gotten pretty far down the road when they first notice it. Mm -hmm. But it would normally start in one of the places first. Yeah. I, I, feel, it, I feel it most in my shoulders, actually. And then it uh, triggers thoughts. So... Um, and then it quickly goes to the rest of my body. But my shoulders yeah. is where I tend to notice it the, the most immediately. So like when good. I have a yeah. tense neck, I'm like, okay, something's going on. And then it'll start forming thoughts. And then my heart and everything else will start getting um It's almost like I stick my finger in the electric socket. I, I start feeling oh, that um, numbness or that... That kind of you know discomfort energy all over my body as it starts percolating up. Yeah, that, I think that's really helpful. I have a friend who, when I've asked these sets of questions, she said, "Well, for me, it's in my neck, and I've mm -hmm. learned to check my neck." That's similar to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. It's this tensity. You you may need uh, someone who loves you in your life to learn how to be a massage therapist. Perhaps they could just follow you around. Yes. I I've asked my wife many times and she will not do that. So I have to outsource it. <laughs> tragic, tragic. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the things, particularly for a faith leader that generates a lot of anxiety is I think we always believe the lie that we need to know what to do. Mm. And the problem is particularly in faith leadership, most of the time we actually don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Do you have a, do you have a time where you could tell us where you didn't know what to do? Could you tell us what that situation was? And then could you give us a sense of what was going on in you under the surface? Wow. That's a huge question. This, this is that a is gauntlet. It is a big question. <laughs> it's a gauntlet. You'll need a nap. Yeah. Or a massage after this. Oh, see, I'm not real good with uh, thinking back too far because those are mm -hmm. really painful memories. Mm -hmm. Um, so a time, okay, I'll go to my, I'll go to my most challenging time. So um, I come back from a mission trip and I find out that my position at church was hired out. And the, uh, the situation was, I did not make a long-term commitment to the church as a bivocational pastor. And the new pastor was trying to understand, well, what are, what are my long-term plans? And if I don't have any, is it okay to talk to someone else to fill the position? So I was in that conversation, but I didn't realize that when I said I, was, I would be willing to step down, that meant I was resigning from the position and he was gonna hire it out. And it, I tried explaining it a dozen different ways. I talked to a few friends who I trusted and uh, we just could not figure out how to get through uh, that 
even though I'm stepping down, I would still like to be working with the church. And then we, we found a pastor that would mediate our conversation. And he said, um, this is a big miscommunication. Next time uh, someone, uh, next time you make a staffing change, make, make sure you get it in writing was the resolution. But um, it, was, it was painful to keep running into the wall that my best modes of communication was not good enough and that he just could not understand. So when I described the problem, he says, hey, there's an elephant and there's a gnat. Let's not focus on the gnat. And then now 10 years later, I can say, well, the, both the gnat and the elephant are both animals. So we need to address both. But um, um, it was just very painful that um, I brought everything I had, everything I could think of and asked for help. And with a fellow pastor, I could not uh, get through. Uh, that's, more, that's more in that whole bucket of pain and not only anxiety, but it was the um, frustration and the uh, frustration with myself and with him that we couldn't work this out. And it took me a year to recover. I think that story is actually a real gift to our listeners because I think most of us have found ourselves in the situation where our absolute best efforts that in the past always worked mm. sud suddenly aren't working anymore mm -hmm. and we don't have any more tools in our belt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's painful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, thank you. Sure. The next question has less to do with your own personal anxiety. Um, I think equally interesting to individual anxiety is to notice how it operates in groups. Mm. And one of the ways it operates in a group is when an organization or a group of people continue a chronic, stuck, recurring, predictable pattern. So you could, you're either part of that group or you could walk into a group mm -hmm. and you could predict what's going to happen next because it's what's always happened. So for example, the easiest example I know is like any, any given staff meeting, mm -hmm. it's typically the same person that always speaks up. Mm -hmm. It's typically the same person that never speaks unless they're called on. Yes. And then it's typically the same group of people that always have the meeting after the meeting. Yes. You know? uh, so can you think of, um, I've never tried asking this question before. It's a complex one, but I think it's fascinating. Can you think of a time in any group where you can see a chronic recurring pattern? Yeah, I, I can't think of one because I'm in one. So I okay. have to anonymize it and make yeah. it a compilation of things. So uh, I think your last remark, the meeting after the meeting is really telling because there, during the formal meeting, there's a power dynamic where someone is uh, managing and controlling the meeting and what's supposed to be said there. And there hasn't been a culture of trust where people can raise their concerns and speak freely kind of like in boot camp and you ask the officer uh, in charge of you, may I permission to speak freely, sir? And then the officer <laughs> will say yes or no. But, um, we don't have that kind of a mechanism in our meetings, whether church meetings or group meetings. I think that would be a neat thing to introduce. Um, 
and, and to actually be heard and received. Um, so, yeah, so the anxiety is that the body language, uh, I can notice that everyone else in the room except the, the dominating person uh, is uneasy with their words and they're not speaking freely. And then we have the meeting afterward where we're like, okay, here's, here's what we see going on, but we can't tell the dominant guy because he's dominating and he's not a good listener. And we kind of have to manage around that. I was looking this up in the Harvard Business Review, and that's very much a management kind of book dealing with people and work situations. And so when you have a leader position person that's not particularly self-aware, what can you do? And the conclusion of the article was, well, you have to kind of manage around that until he or she comes to the realization that they have blind spots and they need to let their guard down and receive some honest feedback. But until that happens, we just have to manage around it and find other healthy outlets for that anxiety. Yeah, that counts. Mm. Unfortunately, mm. that story counts. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I think another source of anxiety in any leader is simply the um, imbalance of input and output. I, I think, you know, we just naturally are others focused and we're not always attentive to our needs. Mm -hmm. I know in my life, mm -hmm. I am still learning how to take seriously what I need because mm -hmm. I think I should be selfless, you know, things like that. Yes. So in the spirit of that, as these last two questions, the first one is, when in your life do you feel most fully loved? Hmm. I've, I've thought about that question quite a bit because, um, yeah, because I, I don't feel, <laughs> a lot of times I don't feel loved uh, and appreciated. So um, I think I, I want, I want from people. So this is something I'm working through with my, counselor. Um, I want from people quality time and quality conversation. So I've really enjoyed this conversation because I can tell you're listening and responding. Um, I don't want monologue, so I don't want to do all the talking and I don't want to lecture. I don't want to be doing all the listening, but most of life with most people, at least maybe that's just where I happen to be. <laughs> most people are into monologues and lectures. <laughs> Especially church leaders. <laughs> Holy yeah. smokes. Yeah. So I love the back and forth conversation where we're building on each other's uh, thoughts and we're exploring new territory. That's, that's what really energizes me. And when it's on a personal level, that's when I feel loved and, and safe. Uh, knowing all the struggles I have to manage, uh, not just mentally, but emotionally and everything else. Uh, I actually have an internal clock now. So I, I was in a meeting recently I have an internal clock where I notice in a group discussion uh, who's talking too long. <laughs> and one of the things I, I don't like to do is I don't like to fight for airtime. And so when I notice one person or two people are talking too much, I'm like, okay, there, there they go again. <laughs> if I were the group facilitator, I would turn that around and say, hey, we, let's hear from some of the others. But when I'm not the facilitator, I just kind of make that a little game. It's like, 
okay, <laughs> how much airtime they've taken and not leave any for others. So <laughs> it, it, uh, it strikes me, first of all, DJ, I don't think you would be very good in a political debate. If you're not fighting for airtime, that's probably a, a, a showstopper right there. Like these current, I think it's the Democratic Party, right, uh -huh. are having these giant debates. Yeah. And it's, it's almost tragically comical watching people try to dominate. So that's just plain funny. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other thing is I, I've wondered if there would be a way to get an app that would actually measure exactly what you said and show people the health of a meeting based on percentages. Mm. And I don't think it means that everyone should speak equally, mm -hmm. but oftentimes, like if somebody's 90% or 70%, you know that's a fail. Yeah, I mean, time is a very easy thing to measure. And so it's it's not the only indicator, but it does indicate something. So if somebody's taking more than 50%, then I think that's the red zone. I think we could throw that out as a challenge to our listeners, that particularly as a listener, if you're the dominant leader, mm -hmm. Uh, do what DJ is challenging and see if you can measure how much you're speaking. And I, I also think where it gets really interesting is who are you letting get away with not speaking? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And is the reason they're not speaking is because you've shut them down at some point. You didn't realize it. Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. Or they're disengaged. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the final question is kind of related. I, I think it's hopefully a little uh, lighter, but um what what geographical locations or what activities make you feel fully human and alive? <laughs> what uh, makes me feel fully alive? Uh, I'm kind of a quirky guy, so when something random happens, um, I think I'm into synchronicity. So, I, I take it you don't mean the 1980s album by the police. <laughs> that too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if I got the definition right, but I love it when God does does something that surprises me. So ah. at a friend's going away party three weeks ago, I meet somebody who's working with an organization that I've been uh, interested in and been following for close to 20 years. And then uh, I come to find out that we know a bunch of mutual acquaintances. And then uh, when I told my wife and son that uh, they already knew about her. And then when I corresponded with her in a following email, she says, oh, you're Jeremiah's dad. I, I love Jeremiah. <laughs> and, and all these connections began to uh, converge. Uh, yeah. around me and that's like um, for me that's a real joy to say hey I got a vital role in this world in this life and God's doing something in in and through me and around me and I get to be a part of it so uh, I love being a part of God's story when he surprises me oh man um, that that is uh, I can say objectively the most unique answer to that question I've had <laughs> Um, I did have a guest tell me off for the question once because the guest is more of a mystical. Uh, he was saying, look, I can experience God anywhere. But I, I like your answer. That was delightful. Well, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for inviting that. Uh, it's what I thought of in the moment. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. You know, DJ, when I, when I first started um, 
noticing your voice mostly it was written at first i just <laughs> i just knew i wanted you on the show because I, I really appreciate the way you think and i think today's uh, episode has reinforced that so for our listeners i'll have a link to gj's website and to his podcast and his work and uh just you'll be better for checking it out so um i want to thank you for coming on the show thank you steve it's a real joy to talk with you as well and thank you for writing your book it's been very helpful to me transformational <music> This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.